Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey everyone, I'm Jacqueline Johnson, the founder and CEO of Create and Cultivate, and this is Work Party, a podcast for a new generation of women who are ditching the rulebook and redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. In each episode, we bring in leading female entrepreneurs for real tech advice on the topics that matter most to the modern career woman from hiring to mentorship to raising money and so much more. Whether you're pivoting to a new industry, negotiating a raise, turning your side hustle into a full-time gig, or pitching your company to investors, we're giving you the tips and tricks you need to take your career to the next level. Ready to make some money moves? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. The beauty industry has major influence on women, and there's no question about it. Since the dawn of advertising in the fashion and beauty space, we've looked to unrealistic images of beauty that have resulted in negative self-talk, low self-confidence, and unrealistic beauty standards among women. But as today's guest can attest, a new much-needed wave in the beauty movement has arrived, and she's paving the way. Long gone are the days of using self-deprecating language to sell products that make us, quote-unquote, more lovable. When launching We the People, CEO and founder Karen Young took note of the shaving ads from the 50s and realized that modern brands using similar language needed to make a change. As someone who had firmly established herself in both luxury fashion and beauty industries before branching out and starting her own Black-owned, Brooklyn-based direct-to-consumer skincare brand, Karen was on a mission to inform our culture and change the beauty conversation. Her brand, We the People, offers a beautiful heirloom safety razor and all-natural luxury grooming products that cater to the modern woman's need, Named one of the top search Black-owned beauty brands in 2020, with an increase of over 1,150%, her brand continues to make a name for itself while promoting inclusivity and product efficacy. Now one of less than 100 Black women to ever raise over $1 million, she recently closed an oversubscribed seed round, meaning she got more money than she asked for, and has now raised more than $3 million. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by the lovely Karen Young, who can share firsthand what it takes to lead a movement in the beauty industry, how to raise capital, how her upbringing impacted her outlook on self-care, and how her background in psychology informs her highly personalized customer experience. There's so much to chat about, so without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. We're so excited to chat with you. So let's take it back to the very beginning. For people who don't know, can you describe your early years, your upbringing, and the impact that it had on how you sort of perceive the world today? 
Yeah. So I, my family is from Guyana, South America. I was actually born um, in the U.S., a Brooklyn born, but traditionally a lot of things that immigrant families will do, especially from the Caribbean and, and from South America, where I am from, you know, the infants will be sent back to where the parents are from to be raised. It's their way of instilling a sense of values. And also to be quite honest, you know, most of them are hardworking, round the clock, like first time immigrants to the, to the United States. And, and this is the way to, to give themselves a room to sort of pave the way while their, their children are, are taken care of. And so for me, what that looked like was at two months old, I actually went back to, I went to Diana, I should say, and I was raised there by my grandmother, um, my uncles and aunts, and I was raised um, amongst my cousins. It had to be like, I mean, I don't know anything else, but it was truly the most magical upbringing I, I think that I, I could have had. I mean, I was at the loving hands of my grandmother, so I was definitely spoiled, as well as by my uncles. I was raised by three of my uncles, and you know, also my my cousins as well. And so, I and and they're also they're much older than me, so they're all at least like eleven years older than me. So I was really like the baby of the family. But you know, Guyana at the time was was really a, a fledgling nation. If you know anything of, of the history, but just super short, you know, British territory, and really left with very little after all of the discovery of gold and diamonds and and so on. And so when I was raised there, you know, we were. I think relatively we would have been considered a, a well-to-do family. You know, my uncles, we actually have a, a long lineage going back to my great-grandfather of being in the, the sailing industry. So they were commercial sailors. And my great-grandfather came over from Scotland, met a woman from Brazil, had my grandmother, so on and so forth. And, and here I am. So I had this really incredible dynamic upbringing that was like slightly like high-key British, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like very well-mannered and then also like super Caribbean where I was like running the streets with like sand in my toes and my grandmother screaming after me to like put on socks and all of that. <laughs> oh my God, it sounds, it does sound magical. So when do you get to Brooklyn or back to Brooklyn, I should say, and start your early stages of your career? Yeah, so I came back to Brooklyn when I was about seven years old, went through the schooling system. Coming back to Brooklyn is really fascinating. I think there was, there's always been, especially when you're raised in, in a country like Guyana and, and in the Caribbean, you know, there's always the sheen that is on the life of, of an American, you know, riches and, and, and all of that. And the expectation that you kind of have everything at your disposal. And I came back to life with a single mom, in a small apartment in Brooklyn, you know, like as the loop sort of coming out of the crack epidemic, in a sense, and, and she was incredibly protective of me and, and really afraid of, of what the world around me was, was looking like. And so I went from this great freedom to definitely more of like a very tight, you know, kind of upbringing, very authoritarian. And so I, I think I just really got very curious about people. I'm very lucky because there was always a bent of creativity in my family. So my, my mother was always doing something with her hands, knitting and, and sewing and all of that. And my sister was an architect. And so I actually got to see what it was like in person to like sit and observe people create things um, from scratch and sort of make something from nothing. 
a bundle of thread would become a, a big blanket, you know, or my sister would come home and part of her assignments would be to actually like build out to, to, you know, model scale, like these beautiful houses and, and all of these things. So I was really fascinated by that. And I was fascinated by her sort of pushing against what we knew as, as immigrants, you know, which was be safe, sort of don't do anything that like rocks the boat too much. And she was just like, no, I want to go into a typically, you know, quote unquote male field and, and become an architect. And, you know, my personal way was always to be very curious and very, I was really the observer of the family, you know, read a lot of books, sort of looking at folks out of the corner, piecing things together. And so I actually decided to go to school when I graduated college, when I graduated um, high school. I went to school for psychology and I ended up getting my Bachelor of Science from um, Fordham University. Amazing. Congratulations on that. And truly such a such a culture shift from where you were and what you were doing as a young child to going into Brooklyn, I can imagine. So psychology, obviously you're around all these creators. How do you get started in fashion and beauty? Like what is that transition looking <laughs> like from uh, like this kind of ethereal maker community to fashion and beauty? Yeah, yeah. That was me being uh, like just fully rebellious. I mean, I got to college and I was like, freedom! <laughs> Literally, like, I shaved my head. Like, I, I was walking around with, like, you know, completely shaved head. You know, I started like experimenting and making my own clothes and I, I like fancied being a fashion designer. And then one day there was a posting um, for an internship at Dolce Gabbana. And I went, you know, like a black Caribbean American ball head girl, you know, like walks in dressed in her own clothes. I had like a really interesting sense of style at the time. I think I just really stood out and I absolutely loved fashion. And yeah, I actually started with an internship there and then it went really well. Um, they ended up offering me a job uh, once I graduated from school. And what was really interesting is that I actually had a moment where I had, where I had like a real crossroads. So, you know, you, once you graduate with a, a BS in psychology, it's, it's like, okay, you really just, if you're going to become a psychologist, there's a whole different path in which you go down. I couldn't afford to do that. And I was really scared of the thought of like being in school till I was 40. I was just like, I want to start my life right now. And I remember I, there was a job posting for a recruiter and, you know, like a, a job recruiter. And I, I went to that interview and I ended up getting the job. And it was like more money than I had ever like heard of before. Like, I, I think I literally would have been making more money than my mother had her entire life as, as a secretary. And it was that. And then like days before accepting the offer, or maybe it was like right after I accepted it, I can't remember, I got the offer to work for Dolce Gabbana in, in fashion industry as an account executive, junior account executive, I would start at. <laughs> it was like half the salary. And me being like completely crazy and just really having no guidance or, or no sense of, of what was next, I was like, this is the path that I'm going to take. And so it was hand to mouth living for a long time. And I didn't look it. I looked like a character out of Sex in the City because I had the most incredible clothing ever. But yeah, I, I decided to go into fashion in, instead. What year was this? So I think I had been at my job about one year and then 9-11 hit. So it was around, yeah, 2000. Totally. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that was like peak 
New York fashion, vintage, like the whole thing. So I was in New York in 2004 for, I went to NYU. So I, like, I remember those days and like, I'm sure you were such a cool badass because I feel like it was, the street style was like on point. I am not going to lie. I slayed. I was just like, <laughs> yo. And we it was might like, need some photos from this time period, I'm just gonna say. H&M had just opened and it was like, I would like go to H&M and like buy a t-shirt and pair it with like a $5,000 skirt or something and like some knee-high denim Dolce Gabbana boots and like my no little no big deal. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, <laughs> I am the shit. I will tell you uh, another time when we have more to talk about the time my heel got stuck in the grate on a hundred degree day. But that's another story. <laughs> I love it though, but I I totally understand where you're at with looking at those two job offers, being in that state where you're like, I'm going to take the risk, right? Like I'm going to go and do what I love and take this risk. And obviously it's Dolce Gabbana. So it's, it's a huge, massive company, but like, again, you know, seeing that salary cut, but that's beauty and fashion. It's the coveted jobs do not pay that much. I mean, there's obviously been a lot of progress made on that front because I was an unpaid intern for like seven years, I feel like in, in that industry, but so you're doing this, you're climbing the corporate ladder, you take this job. Talk about when you were ready to go out on your own and what that looked like. Yeah. So the first time I went out on my own, it, it, it's kind of like a, a like I, I was forced out, you know, um, in a sense. So the fashion industry was, you know, from my purview anyway, anyway, was one of the first to like really take a dive with the gosh of the economy. I remember being at like a trade show like a year before. And I was like, something is wrong. Like, I, I, I don't know how to put my finger on what's happening right now, but it's going to be really bad because we went from writing millions of dollars at one trade show to like nothing. Like there was tumbleweed going through the aisles. None of the international buyers were there. You know, the stores were closing down. People were writing significantly smaller orders. And so I, you know, eventually ended up losing my job with the closure of of one of the companies that I was working for at the time. And, you know, I guess I've always had a healthy appetite for risk because I was just like, hey, this seems about the right time to do something different. And then since I'm sort of pushed out here anyway, and I've always had this creative bent, what if I start my my own brand? And I saw an opportunity um, within the the home goods space. You know, a lot of at that time, there was a lot of grayish going around. Like everyone literally was like, buy this beige-ish couch and put these grayish pillows on them. And, you know, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so absolutely boring. And Etsy was was kind of just starting to like really make its its name as well. And it's like, oh, this is like really inspiring. There are all these people out there who are are using their hands to, to make a living and creating really beautiful things. And they're finding an audience on the other end. So I cleared what I knew well, you know, my job in fashion was to storytell and it was to sell and I built relationship with retailers. And so I took that and applied it to what I was doing with my home goods line. And I knew cost was important as well. And uh, we really just had a fantastic response within a number of fantastic retailers. It sold internationally and we just were on like every press outlet that you can think of. And I ended up on the cover of a um, New York Times bestselling book called In the Company of Women. Oh yeah, of course. I, of course I remember that book. So what was the name of that company? 
that was called hammocks and high tea. And it was uh, an ode to my, my upbringing. And I, I basically took this uh, sort of refined British sense and like did things like tea towels and pillows and so on, really beautiful linen pieces. Um, literally like was drawing. I taught myself Photoshop and, and Illustrator, turned them into patterns, got those over to a pattern maker and, and started working with like a, a sewing house in the garment district and, and making and distributing products. Hey, Work Party listeners, we're taking a quick break to talk about Shopify, a brand we love that also supports this podcast. One question I often get asked is what kind of tools and platforms I think all business owners should know and use. I've tested and implemented a ton throughout my career. So I'd like to say my business owner starter pack is stacked with five-star tools. When it comes to which one is best suited for starting an online store, my number one recommendation is Shopify. If you're ready to share your product to the world, but don't know what next steps to take, then my advice is sign up for Shopify and start selling. And here's why I love Shopify so much. It's an all-in-one e-commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify offers entrepreneurs with the resources to sell products to anyone, anywhere, at any time. That means you could be selling in-person at a farmer's market with a POS system or online through your website, social media, and online marketplaces, or both. Whatever you need, Shopify has a solution. You know I love tools that take the guesswork out of business operations, which is why I'm always suggesting Shopify to brands who are ready to level up. Do you need to up your customer service game? Activize Shopify's advanced chatbots. Ready to dive into analytics? Use Shopify's detailed reporting system to better understand your conversion rates. They were able to help my team synchronize online and in-person sales and integrate apps like Pinterest and Instagram. I trust Shopify with my business because as we grow, they grow with us. Every 28 seconds, an entrepreneur like you makes their first sale on Shopify. How inspiring is that? I really want you to experience that thrill of that first sale. Once you do, the possibilities are really endless. So go to shopify.com party, all lowercase for a free 14 day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash party right now. Shopify.com slash party. Now back to the episode. You know, those things you are too embarrassed to talk about when it comes to dating, like when to say I love you, how to define the relationship. Well, We Met at Acme touches upon all of those subjects and more, and we get right into it with our guests and talk about their dating lives and also what not to do when it comes to dating because we're all kind of confused together. So you can tune in every Sunday to We Met at Acme and maybe you can learn a thing or two while I learn a thing or two. So you're running this successful company and you launch your second company, We Shave, in 2015, which was later named We the People, of course. But tell us about running those two businesses. How did you transition? Did you know you wanted to move on to We the People? Like, how did that whole thing work? Because that seems like a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, as with everything, it's tension and failure, honestly. And so... Uh, the tension came from running a business, my first business, completely solo and, and honestly, just not having any capital. You know, I was literally like working for a forensic psychologist on the side or, and, and before that I was like doing, you know, any little job that I could on the side just to make sure that the rent was consistently paid. I really understood 
how to scale, but I didn't really, um, I, I didn't have a sense of the capital that was needed to, to scale. And that was my, my first big lesson. And so I ended up getting an opportunity to start working with an international showroom and, you know, they really wanted to distribute the brand more to, to interior designers. And so that would have required like sampling and books and all of these things. And, you know, having the product ready to go. And I was just like, I, I sort of have to sit down and face the music. I don't have the capital to, to really do this. And um, I ended up, you know, thinking really hard on it and deciding, okay, I'm going to close the business. And I got an opportunity to go work for Estee Lauder. That was just incredible. I mean, the person I was working for, one of the forensic psychologists, his wife had gotten to know me and just like knew about the business and knew everything about my entrepreneurial spirit, saw the work everywhere. You know, she was like, I literally would like turn on the Today Show when they're talking about you. And she just really admired my tenacity and my, my spirit. And she offered me a Estee Lauder. You know, of course, once you're an entrepreneur, I think you kind of always are. And I don't know if that necessarily even means working for yourself all the time, but I do think that hat that you sort of always wear where you're seeing, constantly seeing opportunities. And I would either tell other one of the, tell others of the opportunities that I saw, or I would like try to chase them myself and we shaved at the time just started off as a really small idea i saw how big you know incumbent brands like estee lauder were struggling to connect with a modern consumer and i saw myself struggling with a personal experience of shaving and skincare was just so big and like i think the conversation at that time was only really just beginning and i thought to myself what if i can have a uh, luxurious and prestigious skincare and body conversation uh, positioned around the razor. So tell us a little bit about what We The People is, what the products are, how you started and where it's grown to currently. Yeah. So We The People transitioned out of We Shave. We Shave was a single skew, a razor with a couple of, you know, shaving products uh, sort of around it. We the people came after spending a couple of really focused on this product and making it the absolute best that I could, but getting to know our customers with a lot of empathy and a lot of understanding where they were coming from and really like diving deep to see what we were solving for them. Once we found that we weren't necessarily just solving a shaving problem, we were actually solving a skin problem. We were solving, you know, a problem of, um, you know, healthy skin rejuvenation and cell toner turnover. We were solving a problem of hyperpigmentation. We were solving a problem of inflammation. All of those things really opened up for us what we the people would become. So the first thing I did was change the name, not just to drop shaving from it and say we'd be more than that. But primarily because uh, in getting to know our customers over time, what I discovered was that we had this like, you know, it was women, it was men, it was trans, it was non-binary. Like it really felt like we were reflecting much more than I even I even knew that we, we were. We were reaching this really dynamic and cool audience. And I wanted to make the brand welcoming to everyone that, that came to it. If that was your choice and if you wanted to, to use a razor or any of our products, I wanted to make sure that you could see yourself. And in terms of going forward, we're building out a beauty and, and lifestyle brand that starts with body care. So that's what you'll see from us in the immediate future. 
Amazing. And I love so much the context around your story because you had this previous company that was successful. You, you know, were able to shut down that business when you knew you didn't want to take it to that next level, which is a success in my mind. And then you move to Estee Lauder, you get this opportunity. You also see where you have another opportunity to go back into this world. And I think that's really powerful because I think a lot of times people think like, oh, I had to change the name because I changed the idea or I had to shut down this business do that. It's like a negative thing, but it's not. It's actually all built on learnings and knowledge and, and what you kind of learned from those other experiences that make you successful. So obviously you mentioned last time that you would have to, for the furniture company specifically, like raise a lot of money and, and have a lot of capital and do this whole thing. As mentioned earlier in the intro, you are one of less than 100 black women to ever raise over $1 million, which is both impressive and extremely depressing at the same time. And recently closed an oversubscribed seed round when you raised now more than $3 million. So first of all, congratulations. Congratulations. Can you, you share your experience raising capital? Obviously, the reason why you did it this time around, the timing of it, and what you see for the future, and what fundraising advice you might have for people who are looking to raise. Yeah. So, you know, I think that every every stone lays the path. And, you know, all of those things that, you know, may at the, at the time felt like failures. Closing my first company actually felt like depression to me. It led me to working with a therapist, which was something that I never shied away from anyway, obviously, as a, with a background in psychology. But I, I had to turn over what that meant in my mind and in my life and what it meant to me. It is such an um, intensely ego-driven, being an entrepreneur, it's such an intensely ego-driven element of, of life. And so, you know, I really wanted to to think twice about this this company and not have that exact experience again. And, and if, if that's the case, you know, really have external stakeholders and understand what I owned within that company. And, and for me, owning the creativity and owning the vision and owning the, the path forward was exactly where I needed to be. But I knew very, very quickly that we actually needed you know, we needed finance, we needed, we needed capital in order to, to really grow to the vision that I have. So I don't want to skate over that to make it seem as if it was an easy thing to do. Raising capital is hard. Raising capital as a woman is harder. Raising capital as a Black woman is unbelievably difficult. But what I found along the way was VCs and angels who really got to know me over time. And I think that honestly was key. And so I'm going to tie that into the advice that I would give anyone who's, who's looking to raise start early because it is a relationship and really get to know people. And by getting to know people, you know, my angels came over to my house for dinner. You know, I, would update my institutional investors and just say, Hey, what do you think of this? Or this is what I'm doing. This is what we, you know, this is what this month has looked for us. This, these are some of my challenges. Just kind of bring them along for the ride. And over time, people just got to know who I was as a person, how I saw the world and how hard I was willing to work. And as a result, you know, a couple of more difficult and, and smaller raises over time eventually became our, our largest round of, of funding. And now I'm super excited to, to go forward and where we'll be putting that capital um, to good use first and foremost is our team. You'll see us building out our, our team really quickly over the next year or so. And then product. 
we obviously have this incredible opportunity to really expand into body care, starting uh, with this dynamic and this lens that has been afforded to us by the way we've gotten to know our customers. So we have really, really incredible products launching, really great experiences, and then we'll continue to scale from there. Amazing. I want to talk a little bit about what you said earlier about, you know, you having to come to terms with shutting down your first business. I think any fellow founders out there can relate to this, you know, starting a company becomes such a big part of your identity of who you are and, and how it works and how you're associated. And I think speaking about that a lot, someone told me once, like when I was having an early meeting, it's like, you know, when I sold my first company, they were like, you are not no subject, that was the name of the business, but like no subjects, not you, like you need to learn to separate and build in, in those ways, because it is, it is extremely hard, especially now when, when you're not only supposed to be the founder, you're the face, right? Yeah. Like you're the founder, you're the face, you're also the CEO, you're running the business. Um, it's unbelievable pressure that no one really talks about. So I appreciate you sharing that as well. The raise, that's incredible. Um, you know, I love that you have this mix of institutional investors and angel investors. I think in, that's the future of fundraising. It's not just the institutional checks. It's the people who really, to your point, understand you and your vision and what you're doing. So you mentioned growing the team. So what is your vision on team in general these days? Are you guys going fully remote? Where, What areas are you hiring on? How big is the team currently? Yeah. Um, the stat that surprises and shocks everyone is that we are a team of only two full people. Ah! So, wow. <laughs> to have gotten there with only um, two folks and, and we're still both sane is, is actually pretty fantastic. And, and that's a huge, so, that's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And of course I, I don't want to overlook the incredible freelancers and contractors and agencies that we have we've worked with along the way and, and that we still work with. Yeah. And we are hiring for marketing supply chain and um, e-commerce as well. So those are like three key roles that really are the most pertinent and, and the, the places where we're sort of hurting the most right now for the business. Absolutely. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, where you're currently at, obviously you've been direct to consumer, you've sold out products multiple times. You have an amazing success and track record there. Are you looking to get into retail? We've been really, really lucky to have retailers like banging the doors down. That has felt incredible, but I tend to be really, really methodical in how I think. And I'm one of those crazy people that will say no time and time again, until we're ready. You know, I try to make sure that the people on my team feel valued and, and not taken advantage of and to take on uh, retail with literally only two people would have been absolutely insane. So what you'll see going forward is a heavy focus on direct-to-consumer because we still have so much room to go in D2C. And then we'll look into our own stores, which I'm pretty excited about, given we'll, we'll see how the world sort of shakes out first. And uh, I think we will look into like one or two like really key partnerships first and foremost, and potentially ones that will take us international since that's a, a burden of its own. How exciting. That's amazing. Well, I could talk to you forever, but we are going to wrap with a day in the life of Karen. So tell us what does a typical day look like for you being the CEO and founder of We The People? Yeah, well, it is a whole different answer than it was nine months ago because as of this week, I have a nine-month-old. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and so I we literally like just sort of turned the corner where I have a little bit of, of 
time at the beginning of the day to kind of process. So I would have said, you know, a year or so ago that what it looked like was me getting up at 5 a.m. and meditating and making some tea and sort of journaling and starting my day and banging out some emails. I was always a workaholic. And now it honestly, it looks like, you know, waking up maybe half an hour or so before he gets up in the morning, giving him some time to settle in his crib, doing a quick body scan, you know, meditation, anything that I could fit in, brushing my teeth. And, you know, if he's sleeping really well, I'll actually do like a skincare routine and like face massage and and all of that. But normally it goes to picking him up out of his crib because he's like screaming. And then getting a bottle into him. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. So in terms of your entrepreneurial journey, what would you say is your biggest win to date? I think honestly, just really just like continuing is, is a huge win. I I could point out the fundraising. I could point out, you know, a number of of things I could point out the product, but one of the hardest things about being an entrepreneur is getting up every day and and going back to tackle it and knowing that today is not going to look like yesterday and yesterday is not, and tomorrow is not going to look like today. So yeah, just, just getting back up and coming at it again and again is, is a huge win. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And on your worst day or or maybe the, the most disappointing day as an entrepreneur or whatever, how did you react and pick yourself up again? Yeah, some of the worst days, honestly, look, we're, we're in the process of fundraising. You know, you encounter a lot of people who don't see you, don't see value in the brand, don't see the, the consumer, don't see the opportunity. And you get cut down quite a bit. And I think purposefully so in that industry in order to weed out so that they can actually find, you know, their sense of success. And I have no shame in however I feel like coping those days. Like I've, I've learned to say like, if I need to order in today, so it's usually like a big order of sushi or, you know, burgers or something. And, and just like saying tomorrow's another day, start again. Yep. Absolutely. I love that. I I feel like my answer would be very similar. What would the number one piece of financial advice for a new entrepreneur be? For me, I thought it was really important to um, run a profitable um, operation as best I could from from soup to nuts. And so I've always been really, really focused on my finances, understanding our, our P&L. And, and before I got there, which, you know, I'll be frank, that that took a while because I'm not a I'm not an accountant and I'm, I'm not a, you know, I don't have a background in, in finance. So for me, it went back to my days as, as an account executive. And when I would like see the spreadsheets come through and I'd, I'd take a look at, I would dig in, you know, and I would look at the cogs and I would look at the markup and I would see what the retailers got, what the direct, you know, sales got. And I was just like, okay, got it. And this is why you can stay open. And so I always took even that bare minimum of advice with me. When we looked at our cogs and pricing our, our products and everything, make sure that you are bringing enough home to keep the lights on, to, to grow the business and to run a profitable operation. And then getting investors is just cherry on, this is cherry on the cake. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. That's incredible advice. And final question, how do you define beauty? Oh, beauty. Yeah. Beauty for me really these days is, is just a reflection of, of humanity. You know, I think beauty, especially as we are in, in one of the most challenging stretches 
of our lives as humans, which is really fascinating because it's it's finally a commonality, you know, um, where we've kind of all been able to say, yeah, no, this has been hard for everyone. So I think beauty is in, is in humanity. Beauty is in giving ourselves grace. Beauty is in understanding that's in what we would we may have called a, a weakness before. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think we all have experienced a shared trauma, which is unique in its own way as well. But Karen, you are incredible. I could, I could truly talk to you for hours, but tell everyone where they can follow you and We The People online. Yeah. So we are wethepeople.com and it's O-U-I. So wethepeople.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at the same handle. We are much more active and we're a lot of fun um, on Instagram as well. My personal handle is hamatshaiti. If you ever wanted to send a message or if I can share any advice with anyone, I'm happy to. Amazing. Karen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. For more inspiring conversations like this one, follow The Work Party on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to rate and review us or show us some love on social. We love seeing you tune in every week and share your favorite episodes. We're at Work Party on Instagram and at It's a Work Party on Facebook and Twitter. And if you're interested in creating your own podcast or want to know the ins and outs of the business of podcasting, we've teamed up with the Lady Gang to bring you The Pod Class, a comprehensive guide that covers everything from planning your content to sourcing guests to becoming your own in-house producer and so, so, so much more. All are available for purchase on the Create and Cultivate website now. That's createcultivate.com. I'm your host, Jacqueline Johnson, and this is Work Party.